So we're finishing up 1 Peter 2, and I'm just going to get to it. Um, I would have done this ahead of time, but I didn't. Okay. So one of the things that's very important for us to remember, and I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody else, is that Peter is giving us some practical ways to overcome suffering. And you have probably experienced some suffering in your life. I know that I have experienced suffering in my own life. There are many around us who have experienced different levels of suffering. And so it's important if we really want to glean anything from what Peter's saying, hey guys, don't, don't look like you're sleeping right now. This is the Word of God, and so we're going to go ahead and just re- remember don't look like you're falling asleep, or don't fall asleep. Um, not for my sake, for your sake, and for God's sake, who we worship. So, um, here's the thing. Um, Peter wants to tell you and I something important. God has a kingdom, and His kingdom is very different than your kingdom. It's very different than a democratic society, because His kingdom is ruled by a very good king, which is Him. And so, what Peter's going to say today about suffering, it's, it might sound a little bit weird and a little bit counterintuitive, um, but it's going to be important for us to realize that um, the kingdom is different than anything we've experienced. And so, in order to experience suffering and to rejoice, which is kind of what he says, thank you, um, rejoice through suffering, it's going to look weird and it's going to feel weird. <clears throat> So, that's what we'll be talking about today. On October 20th, 1880, a guy named Abraham Kuyper delivered the inaugural address of Amsterdam's uh, Free University in the Netherlands, which he founded and which today still ranks among one of the top 100 colleges in the world. So, it was founded by a very strong Christian thinker, Reformed Christian thinker, Abraham Kuyper, um, and he was one of the guys who, who um, propelled what has been called like neo-Calvinism, but really just reformed thinking, wanting to take the Word of God and, and learn from it and not sidestep any issue for the sake of my comfort. Um, he was really good at that. And he's founded this college, and he was nervous because the college didn't have any money. It was um, free, meaning not free in tuition, but free from the, the oversight of either the state government there in the Netherlands or from the Reformed Netherlands Dutch Reformed Church, which at the time was going through some issues. He wanted it to be a place where Christians could go and actually do real science, but with a Christian worldview. Do real, I don't know what other things happen, arts and sciences, uh, math and things like that at the university, but do it with a Christian worldview. And so this university clearly took off. But in this address, he was quoted as saying something that has kind of become like his trademark quote, And it's this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In this final section of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, it's another reminder that this kingdom is not yours, and it's not mine. I didn't create it. I don't sustain it. And I'm not entitled to any part of it based on my own merit. 
You are all my brothers and sisters, and I am yours. Together, we are heirs of the all-time largest, most diverse, and most beautiful kingdom that ever did, does, or will exist. Greater than the kingdoms of David or Solomon or the Pharaohs. Greater than all the kingdoms of humanity. This kingdom expands to include the stars, the galaxies, the nebulae, and the whole universe itself. By no merit of my own but gifted to me by God Himself, by the King. This King acts differently than any other King. And because this is true, He is worthy of my worship. All the other kings descended, they thought, or they wanted to pretend like they were descended from the gods. But this King is God. The kings of the world today take by force and claim for themselves what was once someone else's. The king of kings already owns everything and allows us to enjoy it. The kings of the world war against one another over trade disputes, land disputes, personal grievances. But the king of kings has the power to speak and destroy all things, and yet he ushers in peace. The kings of the world desire dominion. The king of kings already has it. The kings of the world make statues so they can live on forever. The king of kings was before all things and will be after all things cease to exist. The kings of the world do not suffer for anyone. The king of kings suffered alone, personally, horrifically, in order to bring peace and eternal life to those who would come to him. That's the character of the king that I serve. And if that's true, if he's really been that good to me, it's worth everything that I have to want to please that king. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And if indeed it's true that you are that good, I feel like I should repent again and again on into infinity because I... I can never be good enough. I can never feel like I should be standing before you. Thank you for your goodness. Open the ears of our hearts and and the eyes of our spirits as we meditate on your words so that we can learn from you, so that we can hear your truths and respond accordingly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The text today says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Before Jesus came, the way that people understood how to live according to God's kingdom values was through the law. But then after Jesus came, they could follow him, they could walk with him, they could emulate him. And so in today's passage, Peter tells Christians that we are to live out the values of the kingdom which are made known to us by Jesus Christ. So here's how. These are three things that we're going to do that I'm going to give you today. And these come from Peter. They're a little verbose, but it's the best I could do with what I had. One, Christians should willingly subject themselves to authority. And he, he, it's an interesting thing because he's talking about like unjust authority mostly because if you remember, these people were undergoing all kinds of persecution. And, um, and so the thing that uh, is in here is he actually says because it's gracious to endure suffering in mindfulness to God, we should submit or subject ourselves to authority. Now, not all authorities that you come into contact with today are unjust authorities. I'd be willing to bet that most of your parents are not unjust authorities. Most of your teachers are not unjust authorities. And yet still, you feel the urge to push against them. You know how I know you feel it? Because I feel it too. We all have to reject that or resist that. And so that's what he's saying. Christians should willingly subject, subject themselves to authority. Okay, second, because Christ is our king and Christ suffered in mindfulness of God, so Christians have also been called to do good in spite of suffering, which is gracious in God's sight. And third, because of Christ's suffering, our life is no longer lived towards sin, but towards righteousness. If you remember Jesus himself and Matthew says that uh, if you don't gather with me, you scatter. Or if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you scatter. You can only serve one of two masters. We already talked about that last week or a couple weeks ago. So because it is gracious to endure suffering, I'm going to go back. Um, In mindfulness of God, Christians should willingly subject themselves to authority. It seems counterintuitive. But in 18 and 19, Peter gives us the why. What does this look like? Peter uses the language of servants and masters, and he likely does this because many Christians in that time were put in a place where they, even though they had been doing other things, when Christ came and did the work and they proclaimed, when they professed a faith and believed and began to live life as Christians, they were shut off from the rest of society. They were set aside and they were mistrusted by the rest of culture. And because of that, many of them could take jobs serving other people doing their, uh, their hard labor tasks for them, uh, maybe for money, probably more likely for food or for shelter or any number of them. Some of their masters were nice and some of them were very unjust and bad. And as we've seen over the course of history, slavery does not always um, equal the same thing from one generation to the next, but it's usually not the most, uh, um, it's not the best setup. Um, some owners were kind and some were severe and selfish and needy masters who treated 
their servants as objects or perhaps even just enjoyed making life hard for them. Sometimes life does seem a bit unfair, doesn't it? I know that for me, like, I never, um, I processed a little differently growing up. Um, I was, as my parents' friends always said, an old soul. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun. I was pretty random. Um, you probably wouldn't have guessed that. But, um, but I was a little bit different. And in school, I was kind of spacey. It earned me the nickname Space. And, um, and I was different. But there were others who were bigger than me, stronger than me, cooler than me, who had prettier girlfriends. Uh, well, who had girlfriends. Um, and <laughs> and uh, the nicest bikes, the nicest, coolest video games of the time. See, I got my bike stolen, and I knew who did it because I saw him riding on it. But because we couldn't prove it, I lost the bike. It was gone. I never saw it again. It's not fair. It didn't seem fair. But Peter reminds us again that we are to submit to authority, not bullies, like I was talking about just a second ago. Bullies are not your authority, so you do not submit to them. But we're to submit to our authorities, our our pastors, our parents, our friends, our teachers, our, uh, not our friends, I don't know, you know what I'm saying. Submit to authority, even when they're unjust, even when it's not fair. This also means when they are just, but we just think that they're not. And why are we to do this? Well, Peter says, and I'm paraphrasing, because it displays the grace the charis of God, which really means the gracefulness and the peace, the gift, the, uh, it's not shalom, it's different than shalom, but, but the winsome joy that God brings to His people. It displays that when we suffer in mindfulness to God, when we're thinking about God, when we're not suffering for the wrong reasons, but for the right reasons. The winsome joy that we experience in spite of harsh treatment is strangely attractive to the onlooking world. So, do you find it difficult to submit to authority? I do, sometimes, because I'm kind of bullheaded and I always think I'm right. Um, But if you are really to believe that God has ushered in His kingdom in our midst, maybe we should try again next time. Instead of wanting to argue, instead of wanting to even just passively, kind of passive-aggressively argue, like, well, I would, but I don't have to, but I will, which is still just sort of disobedience. It's just shrouded in obedience. Maybe we should try, like when we feel our blood pressure start to rise when somebody tells us something we should do or something we should change about ourselves, a parent or teacher or coach or boss, maybe we should try saying, taking a deep breath and saying, Okay. Or even, I'm sorry. Okay, so, so the, the whole point of that first one was that it's gracious to endure suffering and mindfulness of God. So here's the second one. Because Christ is our king, we should do good in spite of suffering. So not only endure it, but also find a way to be kind to do right things in it. 
So not only is God's kingdom displayed when I suffer unjust persecution, but all the more when I do good in spite of this persecution. Peter says, and I'm paraphrasing again because I want it to come into our context, what good is it if you mess up for doing something wrong and enduring a beating for it or enduring punishment for it? But when you are beaten in spite of doing good, it displays God's grace which is a value of his kingdom. Remember, Jesus showed the world his kingdom by suffering death in spite of doing a lot of good. This must be a sign of the kingdom of God. Therefore, Christians should suffer gracefully when they're wrongly accused or punished because it displays God's grace while suffering for doing good. Peter then says, for to this you have been called. And the word this is in reference to what he just said previously. that you should graciously endure suffering for doing good. So to this you have been called. You have been called to graciously endure suffering. Not just asked. Called. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So it's not just that God has, has it out for you, that he wants you to feel pain. No. It's that a value of the kingdom of God is that one suffers for one another, suffers for the right reasons. One is tested and refined by suffering. One feels what it's like to not be in perfect unity with oneself, to not feel perfection, to not feel comfort, to not get to sit and do whatever you want while the world around you languishes in starvation or whatever. Because Christ also suffered for you, you have an example by which to live. So again, if we want to share the values of the kingdom of God, which I do because I want to live with that king forever, it's good for us to follow that, the king of that kingdom, which is Jesus Christ. And in this life, you don't necessarily chase off every reminder of the fallenness of the world. Although we carry the joy of knowing that the battle has already been won and we never have to fear again, sometimes life still stings a little bit, doesn't it? But continuing to do good in spite of the bad circumstances repeatedly, repeatedly serves as a reminder for non-Christians that the kingdom of God is already here and it's increasingly flooding every dark, dank, and scary part of the world with brilliant light until there is no more darkness. That's really good news. So, um, so point two, do good in spite of suffering. And then finally, point three, because of Christ's suffering, our life is no longer lived in the direction that is towards sin, but it's now lived in the opposite direction. A complete change has taken place. The Greeks called it metanoia, but it was it, it, it's signified by repentance. You stop going this way decisively and you actually change direction and never turn back and you walk this way and you don't ever go that way. You always go this way. That's real change. And so we're no longer walking towards sin, but we're walking towards righteousness. The final passage reminds us of who Jesus is and what he's done, but includes a phrase which is a self-actualizing truth. Christians don't go that way anymore. 
That's just how it works. It's like saying, he, it's like he's, he's saying, hey, stop going that way. But at the same time, he's also saying, if you want to follow the king of this kingdom, you won't go that way. Because by the nature of being Christian, you follow Christ, which is the other way. Does that make sense? So it's self-actualizing. It's telling us a truth that we live in based on a response to the work that God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ. Peter starts in verse 22 by reminding us about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was death. Hmm. Sorry, I'm going, I went a little bit farther. Okay. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did a lot of good while undergoing a lot of suffering. In verses 24 and 25, Peter tells of our engagement in this truth and what Jesus' attitude towards suffering purchased for those who follows for those who follow him. He says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. This happens at the cross of Christ. There are a few places in Scripture where we're called to die on a cross, like Jesus. In Luke 9, Jesus tells people that if they want to follow, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Him. The Apostle Paul said that he was crucified with Christ and he no longer, no longer lived, but Christ lived in him. Something about this exchange of death to life at the intersection of the cross is intended to follow us as Christians wherever we go. Peter reminds us that Jesus' death has purchased for us the ability to put to death continually a reckless bent toward chaos and destruction. Do you feel it? Do you feel how you were always drawn toward chaos in one way or another? Through the work of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb, you no longer are a slave to the chaos. So he uses the word righteousness, and so righteousness as an English word can undersell what the true meaning of it is. Righteousness, to me, can almost seem like the kind of person who sits on the, the throne, kind of, and judges everybody with their nose turned up. Um, usually, in my mind, they have a really pointy nose. I don't know why. Um, and and um, it reminds me of this guy who was rude to me when, in college, I had just become, I had just committed my life to Christ, and I got an earring in my left ear, because that was like the cool thing back then. Like, it wasn't cool to get two earrings. I don't know why, but um, I only wore it for like a year. But this guy was like, you know, if you call yourself a Christian and you do that, you're not a good Christian. And I was like, I don't know why, but I think I don't like you very much. <laughs> but I couldn't figure it out at the time. What, and then later I realized he is self-righteous, which is different than righteousness. Righteousness can, can sound a bit smug. 
but really what it is in its truth is simply innocence, blamelessness, guiltlessness. Righteousness here is not at all about being the best. It's about being free. And so Peter continues in this final verse, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I actually wasn't expecting this, but I ended up bawling my face off yesterday because of that phrase. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's where it gets interesting for me. The question has to be answered, how? How have you returned to your shepherd? Was it by applying certain truths to your life and now you're a good person? No. You've returned because you are supposed to be beaten within an inch of your life. You were supposed to be mocked and spat on. You were supposed to be hung on a cross to die a sinner's death because you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And then Jesus did it in your place. I don't know. I had this little cross that I tried to fade out all of the background on it because I didn't want it to be like about the cross. But the truth of the matter is, you and I were supposed to be hung on that cross. And I don't know why, but because God's kingdom is altogether different and very strange, He did it in our place. This is a strange kingdom, isn't it? So, like Kuiper said in the quote I shared at the beginning, this is not your kingdom and it's not my kingdom, it's God's kingdom. And even as I see through a mirror dimly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I so long to love and serve the king of that kingdom who would be so strange in the way that he loves us that I'll do whatever it takes to serve him. I will suffer persecution. And so I'm gonna close with this. By way of application, let's take a moment to agree with one another right now. Can we hold one another accountable to submit to our authorities in love, to endure suffering and hardships while doing good, simply because by doing so, we bring glory to God. We display the grace of God, the beautiful, strange, amazing kingdom that is right here in our midst. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing that. I mean, there's really not even any better way to put it. Just what you have done, thank you for doing it. Because I know I don't deserve it. I know I couldn't have earned it. And I know that something about your authority and your rule is meant to call us to greater things. 
So thank you. And thank you for speaking us to us through your holy word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.